Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Association of Canada. Dr. David Levi joins us today to discuss burnout and resilience. Burnout is on the rise in healthcare and in many other fields. Being able to understand the causes, symptoms, and treatment of burnout is essential to solving the problem. Dr. Levi is a neurosurgeon who practiced high-risk neurosurgery for more than 20 years, specialized in the surgery of the blood vessels of the brain. Dr. Levi attended medical school at Emory University in Atlanta, and he obtained neurosurgical training at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, under Dr. Robert Spetzler, a pioneer in vascular neurosurgery. Dr. Levi has performed neurosurgery in Paris, India, Kenya, and Congo, and has also spoken in the United States and internationally on the topics of neurosurgery, neuroscience, and faith. He was one of the keynote speakers for our 2022 CMDA Canada National Conference. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, my name is David Levy, and I'm going to be talking to you today about burnout and resilience. I practiced neurosurgery for 22 years, and early on in my career, I had an episode where I was burned out. I started a job. I was very ambitious. Didn't think much about the call schedule. I was one of the few people at the time trained to do endovascular neurosurgery. That is to take these tiny tubes and catheters up into the brain and fix brain aneurysms and glue arterial venous malformations shut. Most of them were radiologists, and I was one of the few neurosurgeons trained. And I became very busy very quickly. I was on call every third night for general neurosurgery, traumas, tumors, spine problems. But I was on call every night for aneurysms because they wanted me to do all of them. They wanted the aneurysms to be coiled and not clipped if it was possible. And in most cases, it was possible. So they were sending me patients from two and three hours away. So within six months of arriving at my new position, I was very, very busy. Well, toward the end of the first year, I asked the chief of surgery, could I have some help? Could I have a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner, someone to help me talk to the referring physicians from three hours away and collect data? I was doing research studies because the field of endovascular neurosurgery was new. Now I'll have to describe the chief to you. He was some years older than I was, also very ambitious, sort of a Renaissance man. He loved to day trade stocks uh, during his uh, in-between clinic appointments. Uh, he had a license to sell commercial real estate. He was a bicycle rider, an avid sports fanatic. 
I guess I would describe him as a bit ADD, sort of like a teenager who hadn't grown up. He had a nickname for everyone, sort of a derogatory name for everyone. And he'd hired me to, to fill this spot. Well, I asked him for some help. Could he get me a physician extender, someone who could help me manage this practice? Oh yeah, he said, we'll put it in the budget for next year. Great, I said, I kept working. And the next year came around and I said to Frank, I'll call him Frank. I said, Frank, did we get that position approved for me for this year? Because I, I need some help, I'm getting even busier. He said, you know, it didn't get approved for this past year, but we're gonna apply for the budget this next year, and I think it'll get approved. Well, it was this time around, I was very sure when the meeting was going to be and if it was going to be approved. So after the meeting, I asked Frank, Frank, did my budget request get approved? No, he said it didn't get approved. But he said, we're all in this together. We're on the same team. We're all in this together. Well, being that I'm a very loyal person and I felt like we were sort of in the trenches together, I, I wanted to continue helping, being part of this team. And I, toward the, after the second year, getting into my third year, I was getting very, very fatigued. I was, uh, really was not looking forward to going to work in the morning. I didn't have a lot of extra time with patients. I didn't have patience with my patients. Um, I specifically was irritated with people if they were uh, overweight and they wouldn't stop smoking. I was losing my, my kindness. And it was about that time that a case came in. Now, since there were only three of us, I was on call every third night. So every, I, I only had one weekend per month off. So this was my weekend off coming up. I was on call Thursday night. In came someone with a high cervical stenosis with impingement of the spinal cord. It's a very high level of stenosis. That needed surgery. It wasn't ultra-emergent surgery, but in the next 24 hours, the patient needed surgery. I couldn't call it like you know, a ruptured appendix, but I needed to put the case on the schedule. So I put it on the schedule. And there was time, you know, Friday, early Friday, but I kept getting bumped back since my case wasn't as emergent as an appendicitis. I kept getting bumped back and back and back. And it was 6 p.m. and then it was 8 p.m. And then about 10 p.m. they said we could start about 11 p.m. Friday night my weekend off. 
So we got the patient on the table. By the way, this patient was about 350 pounds with a, a thick bull neck. It was a difficult surgery. We ended up you know, operating after midnight. I think we finished at 2 a.m. Fortunately, I, I had a resident helping me. After the patient woke up in the recovery room, he was fine, but I got home at three. And I woke up the next morning and I remember something in my mind sort of shifted, like I cannot keep doing this. This is my weekend off and I'm going to spend the next two days recovering from this Friday night case finishing at two. Well, that next week I, I went in sort of tired, did not look forward to going to work anymore. My job, I, I, I just was getting very, very fatigued, but now I knew something had to change. So I saw the department administrator walk by my office and I called her in. I said, look, I need some help. I'm not doing very well. What is the problem with the budget? Why can't we get budget for someone to help me? And the woman looked at me and she said, oh, we have the budget. I said, no, no, Frank said we don't have the budget. She's, she said, yeah, we have the budget. We've had it. Well, now it was a different scenario. Now it wasn't, we're all in this together. It actually landed like a very big betrayal. There was budget. Frank could have helped me, but he didn't want to help me. Since I came, I was getting a lot of attention. People liked me. People were wanting to send me patients. And maybe Frank wasn't getting as much attention. I couldn't figure out exactly why Frank was doing this, but this little vignette may shed some light on Frank. A few months later, somebody came to me and he said, David, I was just talking with Frank and I said, Frank, why don't you like David? And Frank said, I just, I just hate him. I just hate his hair. Now, Frank was a tall, slender man with beautiful, straight, blonde hair. But he was envious of my hair. I mean, it sounds like two high school girls who, you know, one's not inviting the other one to the party because she got too much attention. But we were neurosurgeons. And so I'll give you this little piece of advice. If there is a relationship and you can't understand why it's so difficult, you need to think about envy. If you're gifted, if the favor of God is on you, uh, if you're kind to people, if people like you, it would be surprising if in your career you don't 
deal with envy. And as the Bible says, it is very destructive. Well, I went to Frank and said, Frank, I'm not going to work 80 hours a week anymore. I'm going to decrease my schedule to 50%. With emergencies, I will be working 40, 50 hours a week, a reasonable work week. I need some time for my own life. Well, Frank was angry. That's not what he had in mind. And he pushed me to, to try to, to make this work, to, but I was already burned out. I was not going to be able to make this work. Now, Frank was aggressive. There are certain types of personalities who don't like people to say no to them. They don't like to be challenged. They like everyone to say yes. And I, for the first time in my career, was saying, no, I will not be treated this way. Now, I also felt like God was speaking to me. He was telling me, David, you don't have to be a slave. You don't have to work like this. You have a voice. But as it turned out, not to go with what the chief wanted, was going to cost me a lot. There was a price to pay. And working for these types of people, there is a price to pay if you want your freedom. I lost my, med my medical and dental benefits. I had to pay for my own medical and dental benefits even though I worked for the hospital. Uh, the retirement plan, I lost the retirement plan. Um, the salary. I stated a reduced salary, and then there was this partnership issue. I was out over two years. I was a few months shy of three years, and I was going to be up for being a partner in the group. Now, if you became a partner in the group, you had an increase in salary, you had a tenure, they couldn't fire you. There, was, there were a lot of benefits to being a partner. In fact, Frank said to me, David, I would have crawled a quarter mile on my knees for this partnership, and you were just giving it up? Yes, I was just giving it up. I was going to work at a schedule that was kind to myself, and it did cost me a lot. That was the hardest decision I had ever made up until that point. But I can tell you now, it was the best decision that I ever made. It took faith. I had to trust that God was going to care for me, that he was going to find me uh, another position, or that he was going to allow me to stay there. The medical director of the hospital, he was a neurologist, and he protected me, even though Frank really tried to fire me. He did everything he could to get me let go. But he was unsuccessful until I was ready some years later to go to another position. But I was able to decrease my schedule to the point that I was able to enjoy working again. I was able to enjoy the patients. And I can tell you that it's unlikely that I would be talking to you right now, but I would have developed 
the character or the depth if I had continued on that path. In fact, physically, I don't know that I could have done it. But even if I had insisted and gotten a physician's assistant assigned to me, it wasn't the path I needed to be on. I was to take a different path. I had a different destiny. I was supposed to develop spiritually and not only as a neurosurgeon. And for me, that took clearing some time in my schedule. I'd like to continue talking to you about burnout. And I want to share with you how it was first recognized. A researcher at Berkeley named Christina Maslach was interviewing people regarding why they left work. And she came to interview a man who had quit his job at a legal aid clinic. And he told her this story. He said, someone came in in the holiday season and I was so tired that she said she couldn't buy Christmas presents. She didn't have any money. And I said, why don't you just go to the store and steal some? Uh, and if you get caught, we'll deal with it later. He said, then I, I quit my job. And Christina Maslach asked him, well, what, what do you call this? And he said, we call it burnout. And so in 1984, she wrote this paper on burnout and gave what was called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. It is 22 questions, and we'll go through a few of those questions now. It's graded on a scale of zero to six, zero meaning this, I don't relate to that question at all, uh, or this happens once a week, twice a week, once a month, twice a month, it uh, happens every day. So on a scale of zero to six, you're rating how often this happens in your life and going through the 22 questions. We'll go through a few of those now. So the first question, I feel I treat some patients as impersonal objects. I feel that I treat some patients as impersonal objects. And you know from the story I told that I was treating this patient as, a, as an object, just something I needed to take care of so I could get home. That's a symptom of burnout. Another question. I feel emotionally drained from my work. I feel emotionally drained from my work. In my story, I can tell you I was emotionally drained from my work. I, I, I didn't have any more to give. Third question. I feel fatigued when I get up in the morning and I have to face another day on the job. That was my story. I was every day fatigued and dreaded facing another day on the job because the patients just kept coming in and I didn't have time to rest. Another question, I've become more callous toward people since I took this job. I've become more callous toward people since I took this job. 
Maslach divided these, she divided burnout into three categories. The first she called emotional exhaustion. And that is what I was describing to you. I was overextended, entirely drained. I had nothing left to give. The third would be depersonalization. It was a cynicism, feeling detached. Again, patients seem like objects. My patients seem like an object to me. It was not someone with a family, someone I cared about. It was just some someone to get through, someone to get finished with so I could get on to my life. In the third category, so emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and lack of meaning are the three categories of burnout that Maslach described. Of course, lack of meaning, typically we think of it in terms of the saying, what's the use? I keep working, but every day more patients keep coming in. I, I'm, I'm, I'm never getting out from under this. I never feel like uh, I'm, I'm overcoming. So emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a lack of meaning could also be a lack of satisfaction, lack of job satisfaction. So let's talk about some traits associated with burnout. Typically, people who burn out are persistent. They are fastidious. They are overachievers, and they are ambitious. Persistent, ambitious, fastidious, overachieving. That really describes me as a young doctor. And I have some news for you. Lazy people don't burn out. Lazy people do not burn out. If you are struggling with burnout, you are probably not in the category of someone who's lazy. So what type of people do burnout? Here's a list of the top burnout specialties. Number one, law enforcement. Number two, active duty military. Number three is medicine. Medicine and nursing. Number four, mental health workers, and number five, social services, like the legal aid uh, person that Christina Maslach was interviewing. Well, now let's talk about the six factors associated with burnout. There are six factors associated with it, and we can see where things go wrong it's not all due to the workload, but number one is the workload, the amount of time you spend on work, the amount of work and its spillover. Number two is control. You may think everything has to do with workload, and in my case, it did have to do with workload, but most burnout actually doesn't have to do with workload. It has to do with these other things. Number two is control. How much control do you have over your schedule? The ability to make decisions. When you can work from home. When you need to uh, go into the office. All of these things have to do with control. Number three, rewards. 
Are you rewarded for working harder? Are you able to receive recognition or financial rewards for your work? Number four, and I think perhaps the most important and the one that can make up significantly for the others, and that's community. What is the status? What is the quality of your social relationships? Do you have good friends? Do you have people who listen to you, who understand you? Or do you always do all the listening? Number five, fairness. Do you have a sense that your employer is equitable, is fair, is transparent, is consistent, treats you the same way as the other people around you? Or do you feel like there's a discrimination? Do you feel you're being singled out? Uh, do you feel that it's not equitable? And the last category of these six factors associated with burnout is the category of values. If you do not share the same values as your organization or your institution, you are going to be very susceptible to burnout. Now, workers who are uniquely vulnerable to burnout are those who are emotionally available to others when they're at a weak point in their lives. Physicians, nurses, mental health workers, social services. People are at a vulnerable, a weak point, and they're needing to share with you their pain, and you're needing to listen to that. Uniquely vulnerable to burnout. Also, those patients can be very demanding. Not only do you need to listen to them, you need to try to make them happy. What they've found is that the more data and technology that are involved um, in your job, specifically medicine, the more data entry and the more tech that you need inputting data into the computer, the more susceptible you are to burnout, the more draining the work becomes. Well, there is something called accessibility burnout. And that is being available and accessible to too many people too often. Being available and accessible to too many people too often. Especially when there are many depleting interactions. Now in the last years we've found that social media, we consider that a social interaction. Many of those are stimulating, but they are not meaningful interactions. They are not adding something to you. In fact, many studies show that Facebook and these other social media is a comparison media. It's a social comparison type media and actually detracts. It actually makes most people feel worse. So one of my takeaways is that it's often about relationships. Burnout is often about, yes, you're working hard at work, but it's a relational situation with a colleague at work. In my case, it was a boss, uh, but 
It could also be at home. It could also be a difficult relationship in the home. And it's those relationships that can really drain your battery and allow you not to recover from the workload. A couple of things I want to mention about being susceptible to burnout. One type of person that is particularly susceptible are, is the people pleaser. You have to be everything to everyone. If that's you, and for many in healthcare, that describes us, that's how we got here. We care deeply about people. We want everyone to be happy and happy with us. That makes you susceptible to burnout. If you get to the end of the day and you feel like you've not made a difference, you may be susceptible to burnout. Or if you feel like what you're doing is not recognized, not rewarded, as we've said before, you may be susceptible. If you feel like you have little control over your life, that also would make you susceptible. I want to spend a little time talking about one category that makes you susceptible. And that is that you identify so strongly with a project or a person that you lack balance in your personal life. You identify so strongly with a project or with a person that you lack balance in your own personal life. This happens with caregivers in the home, caring for a parent. They are so caring that they actually begin lacking balance in their own life. Doctors, nurses are very susceptible to this. They identify so strongly with their health care that they don't actually care for their own health, for their own mental health, um, for their own self-care. Well, let's switch it up now. Let's talk about resilience. The first thing people say is take a vacation. Just take a vacation. Well, the good news is a vacation does help. But for many of us, it takes about four days for you to unwind so that you're enjoying your vacation fully and you're sleeping well at night. And at the end of your vacation, the studies show that by three weeks after you have returned from your vacation, you are feeling exactly the same as you were before the vacation. So the vacation lasts about three weeks. If you're able to take a vacation every three weeks, that may help you with resilience. Uh, otherwise, it's probably wise to start working on your job the things, the factors then associated with burnout. So let's go back to those factors because if we take a look at those factors and we switch it around, what can we do to improve them? We actually will get resilience. We can change the way that we are working. So obviously the amount of work and its spillover, number one, the workload, are you taking work home? Is that necessary? Is there a way that you can not take it home? Number two, control. Is there a way that you are able to 
lobby for some more control in your job, in your environment. Rewards also may be worth talking about. Uh, if that's an issue with you, you're feeling unrewarded, then seeing if you can get some rewards put into your job description would be helpful. A community. Physicians often have relationships that are not healthy, especially surgeons, I can speak from experience. Um, taking time to have healthy relationships, uh, taking time to have community, uh, to go to church, to do things that you enjoy, meeting people that you enjoy, hearing music, sermons, things that you enjoy, that is resilience building. And then the fairness and the values that those parts of the factors associated with burnout are things also that have to be considered. But honestly, if your values are different from your organizations, it may be time to find another position. Brian Sexton is a researcher at Duke University, and he came up with resistance building tasks or um, exercises, he calls it. So the first thing he mentions is the three good things. They are, this is not his, uh, but many people have used this. It's very useful for anti-depression work. It is every day for 15 days writing out three things that went well today before you go to bed. You write out three things. And then you text somebody to remind them you have accountability. Um, this is a 50% reduction in depression. And once you've done it for a few days, you actually train yourself to see the good things that are coming. I have tried this, I have done this. Uh, and I can tell you that for the first two or three days, it goes well. And then for some reason, it doesn't. You don't want to do it. It's something you, you'd rather just go to sleep or try to go to sleep. You don't want to write out your list. And that's where accountability is helpful. I often found that... I would just try to write the same things over and over again. So to make yourself write three new things or write more than a sentence, actually write a paragraph, to really start to feel that things have gone well for me today. It took some time and it took effort and it was actually quite valuable. Because gratitude is another thing. Gratitude, appreciation, thanksgiving, those three things are very high in building resistance in counteracting burnout to help you to see what's difficult to see for most, and that's the things that are going well. We typically, um, we see the things that are not going well, the things that are scary, things coming up in the future. Uh, this is the way the brain, the brain works. It wants to look at what what the danger things are, what the dangerous things are. But if we can take time to really focus and even speak out the things that are going well. With my wife and I, we 
typically at the end of each day, try to say uh, one, two, three things that went well today. Where we saw God today, where God blessed us today, so that we are cultivating this attitude of gratitude. Also, something Brian Sexton mentions is cultivating awe and wonder and amazement, which for me means going outside, going for a hike, looking at the trees, at the sky, um, at the flowers, at the grass, getting out in nature, going out where you are not responsible. Um, you didn't make it grow. You don't have to keep it growing. Uh, it is... It is natural, God is taking care of it, and he's also taking care of you. Relationship resilience, resilience in building relationships and having what Brian Sexton calls one good chat. Someone who you can listen to and who also listens to you and who hears you and doesn't dismiss, who doesn't invalidate saying, oh, get over it. You're making good money at it or, you know, someone who's fearful that you're going to lose your job. You need someone to listen to you. Celebrating progress is another category that most of us are not really good at. I can tell you that when one surgery is done, there's another one lined up to go. When I finish one task on the computer, I'm right away clicking on the next thing. Stopping to celebrate progress is very difficult to do, but it is essential if you want to increase your resilience and counteract burnout. The first thing you need to do is notice and celebrate your progress. It can be just a few seconds, but it has to be I did that. I wanted to do that task today and I did it and it's done. And I actually thank God for helping me finish that task. It, it brings God into my day-to-day -day life. I'm doing this with God uh, as a participant in a relationship, not just when I get tired and when I really get frustrated, say, oh God, would you help me? I try to work God into these tasks, but it's not easy. It's not easy when you're so focused, when you're so driven, and the adrenaline is circulating, it's very difficult to bring God into anything. If you're leading people, then celebrate others' progress first before you then say, okay, now get on to the next task. Teach the people that you're leading to celebrate when they've done something. Congratulate them. Encourage them. Celebrate them. Be an encourager. That's something that we are called to do. I have found journaling. There's a task or a category called narrative medicine. It was in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Writing about your events and feelings can also be very helpful in counteracting uh, burnout. 
I want to talk now about praying for patients. In my book, Gray Matter, I speak about uh, praying for patients. And I can tell you, I did not pray for everyone. But when I did find a divine appointment, someone who wanted prayer, someone uh, who needed prayer, it really blessed me and the patient. And I want to encourage you, if you see someone come in with a, with a cross around their neck or a, a cross tattoo or someone who has the same faith that you know uh, you can do a survey, you can ask them about their, about their faith. Do they have a faith or would they like a prayer? But I found that when I'm able to pray with a patient, it allows me to bless them in a way I could not otherwise. And that, I believe, is also helpful in building resilience, that I'm blessing the people, I'm bringing God into the situation, and I'm blessing the people who want that blessing. I believe that a prayer can help people reframe their illness, their problem, into a problem which includes God. That by mentioning God, by praying for them, you're inviting them to see that God is with them. And that alone reframes this illness as, oh, this next season, you're going to be walking with God. By praying with people, I also affirm and I share in their suffering. I'm showing that I've noticed. Typically, I will bring out in my prayer the resilience that they have shown, the strength that they have shown, the good things. I'm, I'm affirming them, who they are, their sensitive heart, their, um, how well they've managed their, their disease, uh, their attitude. I try to bring out a lot of things that affirm them, strengthen them, and also shared joy is double joy and shared sorrow is half the sorrow. And if I share in their suffering, I'm actually lifting the weight of their load. I'm showing them by praying for them that I care. One of the things that prayer does is impart hope. Hope is the Bible's word for imagination of what the future is going to be like. And when someone has a new diagnosis, they don't have a lot of hope. They've been on the internet. They have usually a lot of negativity. And so I want to impart hope to them. I want to, to pray specifically for healing. I want to pray for uh, comfort for them, for good sleep for them, for um, a unified family. I want to impart hope through my visit, through my prayers, often also through physical touch. I will pat them on the shoulder. I will touch them if that is appropriate. When I pray for people, I also impart blessing. I want to bless them. That is really the, the main concern I have when I try to pray for someone. I want it to be a blessing to them. That's also why I may put a hand on their shoulder or ask if I can touch them when I pray. I pray typically very short, but it is a blessing. And I do call up what I see in them how well they have handled this situation, how beautiful they are, um, what a kind spirit they have. Whatever 
comes to mind. I even have to sometimes ask the Lord to help me. What is it that this person needs? How can I bless them? Many of these people are people pleasers. People pleasers get sick, often at a higher rate than others. So if they're trying so hard to please people, they have a sensitive heart or they've been hurt. And you can notice that and you can bless that. And finally, prayer recognizes the whole person. Not You are not just your disease. You're not just my patient. You are a whole person with a spirit, a soul, and a body. And now I want to finish up talking about quiet, quieting yourself. In the age of these cell phones, we are so quick to pick them up, to stimulate ourselves with more dopamine, with more adrenaline. We're quick to watch a video. We're quick to click on links. But we're like two-year-olds who want to stay up and watch the movie, but we really need to go to sleep because we're having a tantrum. And when you need another link, another video, you're clicking and you, you have to stop doing that. You have to quiet yourself, which is the hardest thing to do when you want, you feel like, and you want more stimulation. I take a weekly Sabbath, and for 24 hours a week, I shut off my electronics. That is difficult to do. I can, I've been doing it for many, many years. It's still, usually sometime during the day, I want to check to see if I have any messages. There's just something about this responsibility that we have. But for me to be able to train people, when I was on call, it didn't work. I had to find a, um, an alternative day. But now I try to train my family and friends. They know that I have my Sabbath and not to, uh, they can call me, but I'm not going to be returning their call. It's a step of faith. Taking a Sabbath uh, was not easy uh, when God instituted the Sabbath. He made it one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. Uh, it is not a suggestion. Um, I don't want to be too legalistic about it, but I believe that we are meant for 24 hours per week of rest. Now, that's one-seventh of the week. That's a lot of time. Most of us don't feel like we have that time. But I believe that if you take that in faith, and you use that time also to expand your spiritual horizons, that God will reward that. And he has certainly rewarded it for me. So I bless you now, and I thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the CMDA Canada podcast. Watch for more content in this space coming soon.